The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Now, we have been talking in this series about some very haunted matters and some very relevant matters pertaining, of course, to issues in our brotherhood and pertaining to a thus day of the Lord. But this being the last night of the meeting, I would like for us to hit a different tempo tonight and for us to consider another matter. And it's also relevant, exceedingly relevant, and that's this topic, and there will be peace in the valley. And of course, it was David, the shepherd boy, who has given unto the world the great, the beautiful, and the immortal 23rd Psalm. And in that wonderful and glorious Psalm that means so much to countless numbers throughout the world, has said, Yea, so I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He says, I will fear no evil, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now that's peace, peace in the valley of the shadow of death. And that is exceedingly encouraging and very, very relevant because it won't be long until all of us enter that valley into which no person ever returns. Because the Bible says, the living know that they shall die. And again, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Job 14 and verse 1. And that being true, then we ought to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom, Psalms 90 and verse 12. Now, I have conducted many, many funerals. I'm sure that I have conducted at least a thousand funerals in Fort Worth alone. Funerals for all kinds of people who lived all kinds of lives. Some of them lived the best, some lived the worst, and some lived in between. And some, unfortunately, were sad enough to make a potato wheat. I conducted the funeral service for a young man, 23 years old, who was electrocuted in the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. And even if he uh, got matters straightened out with God, he still died with the blood of another man upon his hand because he killed that man that he was attempting to rob. And that's one of the things that God hates, hands that shed innocent blood, Proverbs 6 and verse 17. Now, while we may not <clears throat> have blown out another's brains or cut his throat, it is still possible for us to die with the blood of another person upon our hands by virtue of the fact that we fail to teach him the saving power of God to help save his soul to rescue him from perishing. 
And so the Bible says in Ezekiel 33, verses 8 and 9, If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked of his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. And it will be a wonderful thing as we go down through the valley of death to know that we have done what we could, everything within our power to help save the lost. But it will be horrifying and terrible indeed as we go down through that valley to look upon those sickly dying hands of ours and see upon them the blood of those we make no effort to save. Also, I conducted the funeral for a man who had five wives present at the service, one to whom he was legally married and four others from whom he was separated. And it looked like a brawl would break out Brother Mara, before we got through the service. Now, this poor fellow had spent nearly all of his life running to and from the courthouse to either get a marriage license or a divorce. And how in the world can a man find peace in the hour of death when his life has been so destroyed? Now, we need to live in such a way that the epitaph writers are not tempted to lie. And oh, how they lie. Just one little stroll through the cemetery, and I've walked among those tombstones in a lot of cemeteries, and I've looked at those epitaphs, I've seen those words engraved upon those markers, and oh, how the epitaph writers lie. Asleep in Jesus, resting in the arms of the Lord, gone to sleep with Jesus. But I'll tell you one thing, in all the cemeteries that I've entered in, in all the strolls that I've made, and in all of the experiences that I've had in looking upon those engraved words, I've never found one yet that said, turn down the thermostat, I'm getting too hot. No, no, I've never found one that said that. So we need to live in such a way that the epitaph writers are not tempted to lie. Also, I held the funeral service for an elderly man who was estranged from his son. And as the son, 45 or 50 years of age, went by the casket, he halfway turned to a lingering audience that was standing at the back and said, Old man, you really fooled them, didn't you? Well, I'm not blaming the father, but what I am saying is this. It is tragic and heartbreaking for a person to come to the end of life a strange and alienated from the members of his family. And what a joy it is, and what peace it brings, when one comes to the end of the way, and the loved ones in the family gather about the deathbed, 
and they take you by the hand, and they go with you as far as they can. And then when the scenes of life begin to grow dim to your eyes, and the sounds of their voices are dull upon your ears, and you're drifting out with the tide, and suddenly the curtain drops upon the scenes of life, and you're gone from earth forever. What peace it brings to know that you have left behind a godly consecrated family that will carry on the work that means more to you than life itself. That you have handed the torch to your own offspring who won't blow it out, who won't blow that torch out, but who will take that torch and run with it to the glory of God, to the salvation of those to the purity of the gospel, and to the soundness of the church. Now that will bring peace as we go down through the valley of the shadow of death. Now there are other things that contribute to our finding peace as we come to that last feast. And of course the basic thing that brings peace is faith. Faith in God and faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, shortly before he died for the sins of the whole world, said unto those disciples of his who were soon to be scattered as sheep without a shepherd, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, have peace. Be at peace. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. You believe in God. Believe also in me. So we need faith. We need faith in God. And we need faith in Jesus Christ. And it's indeed strengthening in this life for us to have the faith to reach over and take hold of the strong, powerful, mighty, friendly hand of God Almighty and walk with him in life. And then as we walk down through the valley of the shadow of death to hold on a little tight. Now that will enable us to say, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appeared. Second Timothy 1 and verse 12. Jesus said, Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now it's easy to believe in God. It's a thousand times easier to believe in God than it is not to believe in Him. Are you aware of that? Now we're living at an, in an age in which there are those who are constantly taking pot shots, and I meant to say that, I said that on purpose, who are taking pot shots at God Almighty. And when those little feeble voices of theirs are dead and they are gone, then the God of heaven will still be living and still be reigning. It's easy to believe in God. It's a much more difficult thing not to believe in God. Because it is the most sensible thing in the world. 
to believe in God. And the Apostle Paul appealed to common sense to prove that God does exist. He said in Hebrews 3 and verse 4, For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. So that was an appeal to common sense. Every house is built by some man. Now that's a sensible thing. A house didn't build itself. You wouldn't have to be too bright to know that a house has not built itself. If you could see through a ladder, you could see that that didn't happen. He says, for every house is built by some man. But, but, he that built all things out here is God. So a house didn't build itself. And the world out here didn't build itself, which means there had to be some self-existent first cause from which everything else has come. Now, we can start with God, the everlasting and eternal spirit, as the first cause, as a self-existent first cause, or we can start with a speck of cold, lifeless, dead man. But how in the world could you start with a speck of cold matter as being self-existent? How could matter be self-existent? And then you would have to get it alive. And then you would have to get it almighty and all-powerful, all-designing and all-creating. And if you had that, you would have a God. Why not just start as the Bible does? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So there had to be a self-existent first cause. Now I'm going to prove it in the form of a syllogism. Let's have the major premise, the minor premise, and then we shall draw the conclusion. Here it is. Something cannot come from nothing. Major premise. Everybody accepts that. Something cannot come from nothing. But here's the minor premise. But something is. This is. This is. This is. This is. This world is. Now what's the conclusion? Therefore, something always was. Now that proves. So I have given to you the proof, the absolute, unshakable proof that God Almighty does exist. Something cannot come from nothing, but something is. Therefore, something always was. And the very heavens out here testify to the existence of God to his creative power. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Psalms 19 and verse 1. So the heavens speak out and say that God does exist. Years ago, French infidel boasted and said, we'll pull down your churches and we will destroy everything that reminds you of God. And a French person spoke up and said, but you'll leave us the sun, the moon, and the stars. And as long as they shine, we shall have a reminder of God. And they continued to shine tonight. Go outside and take a look. And as you take a look, you have the witness there and the testimony of God Almighty, bearing testimony and witness to the creative power of our God. The 
heavens declare the glory of God. Now this is no accident. We have all of these various planets out here. And they're not hanging at random. They're hanging in order. And they're bearing testimony and evidence to the creative power of God. And to say that that is an accident would be just as downright silly as to say that the Fort Worth telephone directory is the result of an explosion in a printing plant. God does lose. Now for us to have peace in the hour of death, we need to keep in mind what our blessed Redeemer has said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And we also believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, and that he performed the miracles, that he died for our sins, that he was raised for our justification. And we today, as the believers in Christ, sang that song, My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. Also, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. But now let's look at a man as he was going down through the valley of the shadow of death. The Apostle Paul. Here is a man who had broken with the religion of his fathers. He had embraced the power, the gospel, the power to save his soul. He had believed in the Lord. He had been baptized to have his sins washed away. Acts 22 and verse 16 and he was the recipient of this promise. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation 2 and verse 10. And now as the Apostle Paul is making his last step toward the end of life, and as the setting sun of life is beginning to fade, we hear him say, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearance. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Now, wasn't it wonderful that he had that peace there in the hour of death? And why? Why did he have it? Well, he had obeyed the gospel. He had been a faithful Christian. But now, in looking back over his life, he could say, I have fought a good fight. Now, he recognized that Christianity, my friends, is more than just a family relationship in which we love one another. And that's a point that is being greatly, greatly, greatly emphasized in our circles today. But also, it seems that we are beginning to neglect to preach that Christianity is a militant religion and that the church of our Lord is the army on the march under Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation. He could say, I have fought a good fight. Then in the next place, he says, I have finished my course. The Apostle Paul, as a great runner, 
had not stopped to rest under the shade of the trees and to sip lemonade, he hadn't even looked back. He'd kept on running, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of his faith. And now the old runner is nearing the finish mark and will soon receive the victor's reward. And in the third place, he says, I have kept the faith. If the faith is worth, worth embracing, then tonight, my brethren and sisters in Christ, it is worth keeping. If it's worth embracing, it's worth keeping. And we ought to be the keepers of the faith. Now, in Paul's day, there were those that had made shipwreck of the faith. There were those who had gone contrary to the faith, but not the Apostle Paul. He had kept it. He had kept the faith. Now, I'm sure at the day of judgment, some preachers will be lost because they have preached the error. But I'm also of the view that some others will be lost not because of what they said, but because of what they didn't say. Because they didn't speak up when they should have spoken up, and thus they allowed the church of our Lord to drift and drift and drift when they should have guided it, guided it away from the rock. He says, there is laid up for me a crown of rock. Now, in the next place, in order to have peace in the hour of death, we need to hold to the same view that was held by the Apostle Paul, that man is a dual being, two in one. There is the outward man, and there is the inward man. Paul says, for which cause I think not, but though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. So man is a, is a creature with two natures, the outward man and the inward man. And when death comes, you have only the separation of the two. You have the spirit leaving the body, and that's what death is. A body without a spirit, James 2 and verse 26. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. So there must be another life. There just must be another life for this one to make sense. I like the epitaph on the little girl's gravestone in an old English cemetery which says, If so early I am done for, what in the world was I begun for? Don't you like that? I like that. If so early I am done for, what in the world was I begun for? Because this life has its imperfections, it has its sorrows, its heartaches, its defeats, and it would also leave us longing for immortality. And if there isn't another life, then there isn't anybody in all the world that can give one good reason for this one. If there isn't another life, why have this one? If there isn't another life, then if there be a creator, he works and calls to no permanent accomplishment. And if there isn't another life, then God's whole plan for mankind would end in a colossal dismal fate. If there isn't another life, then God has created a whole human race in which there is no future. 
And that would be nonsensical indeed. Now, God keeps on living, and if God can keep on living, then why can't man? And it's no more difficult for God to give life the second time than it was to give it the first time. And it isn't any harder for God to give us heaven than it was to give us earth. And that's what death is, an exit from this life, an entrance into another life. And it's the shedding of mortality that we might be clothed with immortality. And all of this is very essential because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, suppose we didn't have any death. Suppose that out here in this world of ours, we were completely free of death. That in the vegetable world, no plant should ever die. Plants multiply and continue to multiply, but not a one of them ever dies. Suppose that out here in the animal kingdom, animals are born, but not a one of them ever dies. Suppose that among human beings, nobody ever dies. We have, we have then a world that becomes crowded, that chokes itself, and life would become unbearable. We have to have death in order to have life. And God Almighty has made the right appointment. He has appointed death because of his goodness and mercy toward mankind, because he loves us and he wants to bless us. So death wasn't given to hurt us, it was given to bless us and to help us. So God's plan is best. God's plan is right. And we have it right here in Philippians 1 and verse 21. In this one passage, the Apostle Paul has solved the greatest problems that have ever confronted mankind. The problems of life and death. And he has solved the problem of life in this manner, to live is Christ. With four little simple words, he has solved the problem, problem of life, to live is Christ. And then he says to die is gain. So when we solve the problem of life, there is no problem attached to death. Death will just automatically take care of itself whenever and wherever it comes. So to live is Christ and to die is Jesus. Years ago, a little girl went to church and her parents did not go. And when she returned home, her mama said, Honey, what did the preacher talk about today? And the little girl said, Mommy, he talked about a man who went walking with God. And they walked and they walked and they walked and they walked. And finally they stopped. And God looked back over the way that they had come, and he said, It's so far to your home, just come and go home with me. The preacher was preaching about Enoch that day, the man who went walking with God, Genesis 5 and 24, and they walked and they walked and they walked, and finally God took him. Back in 1955, I took my father down to Houston to the renowned heart surgeons there for an aorta transplant. Transplant, now I believe they're using plastic ones, but this was a transplant. We had to wait a few days in order for somebody to die to get one. 
It was the 27th operation of that kind in all of the United States. And the night before the surgery, as I was getting ready to leave, he took me by the hand, very warm, tight, hand clasp, no trembling, no fear, steady as a rock of Gibraltar. With a very intensive look in his eye, he said, Son, if I come through in the morning, it will be just wonderful. If I don't, it will still be all right. My father never went to school a lot, but I consider that to be one of the most profound statements that I've ever heard or read in all of my life. If I come through in the morning, it will be just wonderful. If I don't, it will still be all right. It would be all right because he, as the Apostle Paul had done, had broken with the religion of his father. And he had been faithful and loyal. My mother passed this life a little over a year ago. And she and my father, they never had a search at the church. They never opened the doors for any occasion if they were physically able to attend. But what they were there, there, every, every day. Then the other day when we began to sort out some of the things that my mother left, there was my father's little testament. There was also the little Nichols pocket Bible encyclopedia. He carried those with him just like he carried his keys and his purse. The little testament, the little nickel pocket Bible encyclopedia in which he could turn and find his record. I remember when I was a boy, my father used to teach a class in a very popular denomination in the South. They started going to the gospel meeting there at the Church of Christ in our little community, little village. Come home at night, my father would get the Bible and he'd say, now what that man is preaching is right. What he is preaching is right. What he is preaching is right. Night after night he would say that. He said, I never knew that there was a church anywhere in all the world that taught what that man is teaching. So he and my mother obeyed the gospel. That church had to get them another Bible teacher. They had to get another Bible teacher. So he said, if I come through in the morning, it will be just wonderful. If I don't, it will still be all right. Now, William Cullen Bryant, the boy poet, when he was only 17 years old, gave to the world the beautiful and the historic Thanatopsis, in which he said, So live, that when thy summons comes to join the innumerable cavern that moves the dark mysterious realm, for each shall take his chamber in the silent halls of death. Thou go not like the quarry slave at night, scourged to his dungeon, but sustained and food 
thine unfaltering trust. Approach thy grave like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down the pleasant dream. And that peace in the valley of the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I rock and thy staff that comfort me. Tonight, if you need to come and answer to the glorious call of Jesus, we pray that you will. As we stand and sing tonight, will you come?